0: where you know something comes up in a scout dragger and the guys with the, with the scout dragger can give you like you know an approximate oh yeah we caught that on you know mile 14 right? yeah
1: <laughs> you know? when, when you're when your stratigraphic profile is in
0: fathoms it's yeah. uh you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it
1: New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick
0: and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I'm joined as I am every fortnight by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Not too bad. How are you, Gabe? I uh, am doing quite well. I'm here quite appropriately beside the Neville site and the appropriateness of that will become more apparent to the listener as we go on. Um, Our sponsor tonight is the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. And um, speaking to to Trevor recently, I'm told that he's become more comfortable with the idea of of me reading this because even though um, I have not quite mastered the full New Brunswick accent, he feels as though APNB is really going to get its money worth with a aspirated yes at some point. And with the idea of getting uh, your money worth, we still have not had an appropriate uh, name come in, Ken. And if there were to be one, uh, what email address would they send it to? It would be going to New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. I continue to be amazed that that just was not taken. And the number of things that for the show, we have just uh, our Instagram account, which I've just started. Uh, is the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, which, since we are the only, I think, New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, it's it's uh, easy to understand why that wasn't taken. But I would encourage the listener to follow us there if they're on Instagram. We right now we we only have one post, and it's a channel flake from Maine. But but that's just a hint of all the great things to come. I think exactly, and it's drawing some attention. You said too, it is. We're up to uh, over forty followers on that's Im- Instagram.
1: That's impressive.
0: It is. It is. Um, and I, I feel a little bit weird using it because I've, I've carefully cultivated, and this may be revealing too much about myself to the listener, but my personal Instagram has been carefully cultivated that it really only shows me pictures of cats in bodegas. It's pretty much, you know, that's a cat curled up in a box in a bodega. <laughs> that's my Instagram. So Ken, um, but if we, we still do not have the appropriate name, as I was saying, and so when the winning name, if it were to come in, um, to rename this podcast over the next fortnight, uh, we have a very special prize coming up, and I was wondering if you could share uh, what that prize is.
1: Well, at this, you know, at this uh, dark and kind of dreary time of year, um you know, that it's getting a little bit lighter outside. There's a lot of snow on the ground. We're kind of, you know, it's slushy. It's unpleasant, but we like to think of warmer times. And uh, and I was thinking that uh, uh, this this the 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 winning contribution um, could uh, uh, Lethbridge is actually known as the the sunniest place in Canada um, and uh, the most most days of sun in the whole calendar year. Uh, beautiful summers here. Uh, we have this uh, beautiful river running through the city uh, where you can take two rides down the Old man River. Uh, we also have an iconic uh, rail bridge that runs across the Old man River um, and uh, it's actually featured recently in the the uh, HBO hit series, uh, last of us um I, my understanding it's in the background of one of the scenes
0: well, what um, does that show about
1: uh it's about a uh basically a fungus makes people into zombies oh. <laughs> it's, it's based on a based on a video game um <laughs> so you could pretend that you are um pedro pascal and uh, uh floating down the uh, old man river and To go with this, uh, you'll have Gabe and I along with you um, and we'll be able to sip on Mai Tais in uh, um, some delightful uh, tiki cups. Uh, uh, Bitter Mai Tais, a recipe that Gabe provided me with and uh, I uh, I like to think I've mastered. So
0: so The the, the trick to the bitter Mai Tais is that unlike the ordinary Mai Mai Tai, this adds a little Campari and a little uh, Orjat. That's how you make them as well, Ken, right? It is, yeah, and I I get the fancy Orjat too. Yeah, I mean, you really have to. Um, we could go on a whole tangent about this, but the uh, uh, I'll, I'll share with you off the air. I mean, or or you know, perhaps the lucky donor. about there's a way to make chat out of avocado uh, pits, which is quite good. Oh, okay. I, I thought it was made with almonds. It, it it usually is, but there's a there's a more environmentally friendly way. I try to grow grow
1: avocado plants with my avocado pits, but mostly unsuccessfully, and I. I would like to re- report to the listeners that we actually have our first listener mail in the uh, Gmail inbox. Uh, and we'd like to thank uh, uh, David W. Black, a um, uh, listener of the show, probably one of our 37 followers actually, uh, who um, who said that he just listened to the third episode. I think we, he might've followed up with us on this already. Um, and it'll lead into our Hakuna errata here, but uh, um, uh, he, he gave us a fantastic uh, uh image of a fluted point and a fulsom point uh clovis and a fulsom point um the folsom point uh, making fun of the clovis point uh, because the flute is larger on the fulsom
0: point <laughs> fantastic thank if you very had, much if dude. we
1: had, if we had a video that we would we would share with this podcast uh um we we'd put that image up on the screen right now
0: <laughs> instead they'll just have to imagine it um and can I believe we also have a prize uh we we are we've had over Four hundred listeners at this juncture on this show, right? That's correct. Four hundred in- unique listens. And so we are—we're um, in growth mode, I believe. As I say in the business community, we're yeah. looking to—if um, you'll pardon the expression—scale up and uh, seeking synergies uh, and upstream and downstream efficiencies. Yep. Yeah. And uh, to support this, that we—we we are going to have a contest for our one thousandth listener. Am I right?
1: That's correct, uh, and we have uh, we have a really unique prize for this one. Um, we're in a digital age, um, you know. I've lost money on crypto, so why shouldn't you? Um, the prize for for the our thousandth listener um, uh, will be uh, we're going to get you a. I have a actually a neighbor who has a three D printer. We're going to get a three D printed version of a bust of Caesar uh, to put on your desk, um, uh, whether it's in your office or um uh just displayed prominently so everybody can see it um and you thousands listener will be the the exclusive owner of the first and only new brunswick archaeology pod nft showing the number 1000 on all, our all-time downloads list and, and as far as i can understand an nft is basically a jpeg that you pay thousand dollars for
0: and um, so, Ken, the, the F in NFT, it doesn't stand for what you think it does. It stands for fungible. Is that correct? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that's what I thought. Um, and uh, w- what we're also going to be uh, having and uh, coming up is that we've, we've realized that, that since we're in growth mode, that the number of episodes that we're because we're doing a, a fortnightly pod working through New Brunswick archaeology right now that that might not be enough for everyone. So we're going to start adding some special episodes. That's right. And and coming up, we're going to have uh, Bill Farley, uh, who some listeners may know from the um, Archaeology Gaming YouTube, which which he does, yep. where he basically teaches archaeology through YouTube Gaming. But he's also the editor of uh, the Council of Northeast Historical Archaeology Journal. Um, and so he's going to come on and talk to us about uh, publishing in archaeology and also give some advice for students or early career professionals looking to publish their first article so um, there'll be a bit of variety coming up for the listener who wants some uh, to pick up some information about those kinds of topics as well yeah and you can find bill uh, on twitter uh, at
1: archaeology game and uh, and i think it looks like his youtube handle is at archaeology tube I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh so we'll we'll be talking to Bill here in the next week. And that'll be a lot of fun. We could ask him about uh, Last of Us actually.
0: Yeah, I, I I this is I mean this is the first I heard about, it, but it seems like a thing the kind of thing that Bill will have an opinion about to me. <laughs> if I if I had to guess that uh that Bill Farley will know one or two things about that. And um, I, and I think
1: too we can probably um do a little bit of a preview that uh uh we'll have at least um two conference broadcasts, uh, where I think I'll be patching in probably with a less uh, 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 lower quality microphone uh, from the Society of American Archaeology meeting in Portland, Oregon, um, at the uh, at the end of March. Uh, and then I think you and I are going to try to get uh, uh, at least some recording done uh, uh, at the Canadian Archaeological Association meeting in Member Two.
0: I think that's exactly right. And so that also means that if, if folks are going there and they want to talk about uh, New Brunswick archaeology or related topics uh let us know we'd love to do uh, something live with you depending on exactly who the you there is but So, Ken, I think, I think we're on to Hakuna Irata. and we are proud to say this time, this is, this is going to be, with, with the, this, we also have Dave Black to thank for this, because he pointed out our erratum this time was uh, not one that was really an error, it was one of omission, and this is just that, that we got rolling on discussing the uh, different fooded points from around the world, and am I correct that we missed one from Siberia, Ken? That's
1: correct. It's uh, so the a, a site called Uptar in sort of northeastern Siberia, where they've found one um, sort of an isolated um, fluted point that's fluted on one surface as opposed to both of them, like you would see in, in North America, for example. And, and uh, 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 the, reading the article, essentially, this is uh, an isolated find. It wasn't in very good context. So they actually don't know how old it is, um, but they make very clear that there's actually no... Um, no indication that this is at all tied to North American fluting trends um, uh, that this isn't you know sort of like a uh, the the progenitor for for later fluted points in North America, but uh, it's just that it's another case example of, of being being found there.
0: Great um, and then when we were discussing, we also talked about that that there's some mention of stuff in the middle salutrian that looks a little fluted, but we weren't really going to get into that. We'll just sort of flag that for People are interested in chasing that down. Yeah. Well, all, topic... all in all, in the article that we was in the show notes last time, the
1: uh, the fluted point technology in Neolithic Arabia article. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, yeah, I appreciate you you bringing it to my attention. Actually, I had no idea. And uh, as I mentioned last week, I th- well, I haven't because I'm on sabbatical. I will at the last minute edit my my teaching notes appropriately probably about 8 minutes before <laughs> before before the class. Um so our topic this week though is uh, the early maritime archaic in the far northeast. And but we're going to, of course, narrow that down to New Brunswick like we do um, every week. And I thought uh, a place to start here would be that when I when I approach Maine Maritime prehistory, there's there's pretty much three rules that I that I do so with. And, and the first of these is that perceived population discontinuities tend to be the result of low archaeological visibility, bad preservation or inadequate radiocarbon dating rather than true population discontinuities. My second rule is that Dave Black's hunches have tended to be correct. And my third is that I don't really trust rocks. I don't really think we should trust lithic sourcing. <laughs> Ken's grimacing, you can't tell. Um, but the reason that 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 my rules here are relevant uh, for this is that what defines the early maritime archaic or the early archaic in New Brunswick or in, in the Maritimes is that it was essentially missing for something on the order of 5,000 years, there was this this basically this big hole in the archaeological record and so you had on on the one end 10,000 9,000 years ago something like that you get the end of the paleo indian period which we talked about last week and along with this you get rising sea levels and with it new and very productive marine ecosystems but what we're not entirely sure about at this transition is what exactly kind of happened. so And this is going to be a theme when we talk about every transition in the archaeological record is trying to figure out what was going on. But we get the sense that um, in the Northeast, as throughout North America, there's sort of this change from a kind of big game hunting specialization to something that's much more what they say in the anthropological literature as kind of, quote, broad spectrum, end quote, where people are exploring a wider array of resources and so throughout North America, this stage we could say um, is called the Archaic. Does that more or less fit your sense of the Archaic broadly, Ken?
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think uh, um, you know, you're, you said that sort of shift from big game hunters to broad spectrum foragers to the point that in the Southeast, for example, when they talk about Dalton, like which is sort of a late Paleo, early Archaic thing, they actually have referred to them in the past as like a white-tailed deer. Uh, adaptation like basically the pe- you know the the environments that people are moving into and the places where you're finding archaeological sites are particularly conducive because you've got a new forest environment that are good for play uh, animals like deer but not great for you know large migratory animals like uh like caribou and and uh, and you don't have your there's no more saber-toothed tigers or mammoths left uh, left in the world at that point either so
0: more is um, the pity i think
1: yeah and 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 we should point out too um tonight we'll be talking about the earlier maritime archaic um, uh, as uh, as as one dr. Reinick and and uh, and Dr. Matthew Betts have have classified it and that's that um, uh, conventionally within North America we would generally refer to early middle and late archaic. Um, and uh, what what Matt and uh, Gabe have argued um, is that within the maritime archaic, so in the Atlantic Northeast in particular, um, there's not a real, Sharp distinction between early and middle Archaic. I mean, I don't know if there really is in a whole lot of places, uh, but uh, people like to break up time into packages. And so, when we talk tonight about the early maritime Archaic, what we're talking about is a period that extends from about 9,500 years ago up to about 5,500 years ago, which encompasses what we you might traditionally envision as being um, the early and middle Archaic.
0: The uh, and and Ken, yeah, speaking of these these ideas that. I think I was telling you, I was, I was joking with my partner earlier that, that my major contribution to regional prehistory has been to eliminate two middles. First, the, the middle Paleo-Indian and the, the middle archaic, although I, I suspect they'll linger on despite my best efforts. Um, but there's this tendency to, to think about all this stuff in in packets of three, right? So in uh, if we want to really narrow it down, you know, here in the Northeast, we think about uh, Paleo-Indian, archaic, and then woodland. But if you wanted to really like crank that out to a kind of global scale, we're all basically hung up on Paleolithic, Mesolithic and And Neolithic, Neolithic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the sort of Stone Age then you've got this kind of broad spectrum hunter gatherer thing. And then you've got, you know, villages and horticulture and agriculture
1: because people will always work towards living in a city.
0: Yeah. Well absolutely. I mean yes. the uh, you've only recently gotten out of Toronto. Your your archaeology recent North America still gets mailed there. It knows it knows where you <laughs> live in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so but also all of this we're situating all of this in these kind of interesting uh trinities that that exist. Um but so climatically what's going on uh 9,000, nine thousand, ninety five hundred, ten thousand years ago is we've got a warming trend right so there's really pretty dramatic environmental change so lots of places that used to be um lakes are becoming swamps that's a that's a real thing we're also Um, in the holocene now oh yeah so what is the holocene ken
1: uh it's basically the period after the last the end of the last glaciation So so we enter human history in north america in into the pleistocene um, and the Holocene is basically a period that extends from the end of the Younger Dryas period, starting at about 11,600 or 700 years ago, um, and extends right up to uh, present day, unless you are a believer in the Anthropocene, uh, which, uh, which uh, would be that humans have modified the climate in such a way that since at least probably the 1950s, um, we've actually entered into a new geological epoch. Um, And so, so the Holocene is, is essentially the next geological epoch after the end of the Pleistocene, which is the last major glacial period. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, the based on the, what is the, the, it's, it's like the guild of like international geologists or something like that there's yeah. like a, there's a name for them and they have they've, they've made one vote on the anthropocene but they haven't made the second one so, oh, it's, so
0: it's still in limbo
1: it's not fully official yet it's like been sort of semi-adopted but it's not like 100 a real thing yet based on so it's not in a geological chart
0: yet um oh interesting yeah the, so yeah i i always imagine that sort of being like a kind of like it's it's like that movie eyes wide shut you know it's like lots of lots of cloaks and staffs and that kind of thing and then they, they vote on that. But the, uh, and I was also going to tell the listener that we're actually not going to put the, the literature in the show notes about whether or not we're in the Anthropocene because we only have 4,000 characters. <laughs> so, you know, email me and I'll send you a Zotero file that yeah. includes some of the literature. So, but the point is it's warmer. And is it safe to say that, because you know, the to, to whatever degree the paleo were occupying a landscape pretty visibly unlike the one we currently inhabit. Whereas by the archaic people are in a landscape that's more alike than different from the one we inhabit.
1: Yeah. And, and you can kind of think it, think of it as sort of over time sort of from the beginning of the archaic till about, you know, about 5,500 years ago, you sort of have, if you start sort of in the South end of North America, like the Eastern woodlands area, kind of the Eastern part of North America and kind of work your way up into the Northeast over time, these forest environments um, sort of establish themselves. And so you have, um, uh, in the southeast, you have uh, mast forest, basically. So like hardwood forest starting to establish itself. And in the northeast, you have um, uh, like spruce and hemlock forests and, and that sort of thing coming in. And then later on, you start to get hardwood trees. And with that, you have um, these broad spectrum foragers. So these, these archaic foragers now have sort of new sources of food. Um, uh in in kind of a brand new um, a whole bunch of new species of wetland plants, um, along with um, later on uh, uh, like massed fruits, so like acorns and, and butternuts and and, uh, um, and other like hardwood trees that produce fu- uh, fruit that is is edible.
0: Great. And so uh, what's sort of going on at that period too? if we if we again, just kind of broaden the lens a little bit and think about New England as a whole, is that one of the challenges we have about understanding the early Archaic is that there's some overlap between sites with Archaic period artifact assemblages and late Paleoindian artifact assemblages. This is particularly true at places like the Mashantucket Pequot Reservation in Connecticut.
1: Yep, and up so, in like the and like the south shore, like the north shore of the St. Lawrence River. So, like the Quebec shoreline along there's all that early Archaic. Late Paleo stuff um, that, like mm-hmm. Michelle Plourd and those folks, have talked about. Um, um, uh, I can't. I, what is the uh, Captain Bonnet's in those sites? Yeah,
0: I, if that sounds like the word I've read. Yeah, <laughs> Ken is our <laughs> bilingual host on this program. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we start off in this in this kind of interesting fuzzy area, and but we end up with this strange thing that happens, and that is that. There is a phenomenon called the Atlantic slope tradition, and it is characterized by really well-defined projectile points. And those projectile points extend um, up from basically the Carolina Piedmont, Yep. at least, um, to very close to where I am currently sitting, uh, which is the Neville site in Manchester, New Hampshire. And
1: potentially a little bit further.
0: Possibly a hair further. Yeah. And... Uh, when Dinkaz, who's one of these giants of archaic period archaeology in New England, was at UMass Amherst in worked on it. She said the Neville Sequence, which is from the Neville site, um, excavated by avocationalists That's a, a theme we're going to actually return to here. So by amateur archaeologists, but she reanalyzed the collection. Um, And the, re- the reason for that was that it was, the site was about to get destroyed by a bridge abutment. Um, she said the Neville Sequence establishes the fact the middle archaic And as Ken said, we've lumped the middle archaic in with the early archaic. (laughs) Uh, Cultures of Southern New England conform broadly to patterns first recognized in the Carolina Piedmont, a cultural domain continuous along the Atlantic slope from North Carolina to New Hampshire in the 5th and 6th millennia BC, is implied by this conclusion, equivalent complexes remain to be defined in the Middle Atlantic region, where sufficient material is known in collections to certify their presence. So this became called the Olympic slope tradition or the Olympic slope macro tradition, yep. and it was defined by uh, really, really super diagnostic, although not as diagnostic, not hyper diagnostic like the points we described last week. Points that were called Neville and Stark. Yep. Um, Ken, you're the you're the lithics guy in this program. Do you do you want to describe those for the listener? Uh,
1: so so they're sort of roughly triangular shaped points. Um, <laughs> There, uh, roughly uh, triangular-shaped points um, that kind of uh, the blade margins um, expand, uh, and then they come in and they have a bit of a shoulder, sort of a, a rounded to cornered shoulder, um, and they come into what is a broad but contracting stem base and generally have a flat to sort of um, um, vaguely convex base on them, and so they kind of they look a little bit like. Um, like almost like a, uh, like a spruce tree. If you, you know, like a, like a clip art version of a of a, of a conifer tree, basically. Um, sort of like a triangle with a stem on it, basically.
0: Great. Was was it Alex peltier Misha who thought that projectile points were likely based on leaf patterns?
1: Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I I mentioned... have this great, I have this great picture of a, of an eagle, um, that is, uh, basically diving in to catch us like a fish out of the water and when an eagle has its feathers tucked in and its legs sticking up behind it it is highly reminiscent of like a broad point or like one of these like neville points basically right like it's like an almost perfect triangle with a like a stem on it basically no kidding Um, yeah so so maybe these are maybe these are effigies of of you know their newly established softwood forest or something Cool, um, but uh, but one of the one of the so we we know that these come up from like up the eastern seaboard from the Carolinas, um, uh, and the Piedmont. For those that aren't familiar with the geography of of the southeast, is basically a region between the Appalachian Mountains uh, and the Atlantic Ocean. Um, uh, a fairly fertile area too, like agriculturally fertile. Is that am I correct there? I, um, it's I kind would of assume like, it is. Yeah, it's like the southeast United States version of the foothills, essentially. Um, but the Appalachians are really old, so they're not really foothills. What are they instead? I don't really know. that. (laughs) Uh, Well, because like, aren't the, the Appalachians are like eroded down really far. And so aren't like they called Piedmonts because they're lower than a foothills would be like the foothills here that I see
0: for Gabe and Ken to discuss more geology.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're not we're not good at that stuff but, um but uh but there's there uh, so kent sassman actually kind of proposes this interesting idea about where some of these um uh, moral mountain derived point forms come from and suggests that um uh there may have been a group that actually originally was living in the northwest of the united states um in the cascade mountain region um and sometime around like nine or ten thousand years ago journeyed down through central United States, maybe following the Missouri River, ended up in the Southeast. Um, and, uh, and this projectile point form that they brought with them, uh, um, this Morrow Mountain style uh, that, that the Neville and Stark forms are kind of related to, uh, then persisted to move up into the Atlantic seaboard um, in terms of, and, and he, he envisions this as maybe um, a second group of people coming into the Southeast um, and and maybe coinciding and, and living alongside groups that would have been Clovis descended populations in some ways.
0: Great. And so um, but the the sort of big thing that happens, though, when we're thinking about this in terms of New Brunswick or in terms of maine or or the Maine Maritimes region, is that there was not a visible archaeological presence in the region between, you know, 9,000 or 10,000 and 5,000 years ago, approximately. So this came to be termed in the literature, the great hiatus. And this is a kind of interesting phenomenon in which it's one of these things in which for the most part, people kind of knew what was going on, um, but they still hadn't really figured it out. So. There was this period when, where, where there were not these kind of diagnostic stark Neville points um, appearing, at least not in any abundance, in Maine and the Maritimes. And so uh, these two guys, Richie and Fitting, they said, well, there's not really any people because the boreal forest couldn't support a significant population. That was one theory. That's called the Richie, Richie-Fitting hypothesis, um, which is it, it works really well because fitting sounds like a verb in that. No, it's a little confusing to me.
1: This always really confused me when I was an undergrad. Like <laughs> me uh, too. I, I recognized Richie, but I was like, what is he fitting? What is yeah. he fitting in here? Is it that the like he thinks that something else fits in the early archaic
0: or and it's funny because it sounds like they weren't fitting. That's like the art <laughs> But anyway, so the Richie that was the the sort of theme there. But but really David Sanger, you know, as early as like the middle of the 1970s, you sort of see it in literature. He basically says, Well, the great hiatus. Probably has to do with that we haven't really surveyed the interior, and on the interior sites are likely to be deeply stratified. And oh yeah, coastal erosion has become so dramatic because sea live sea level rise after the uh, Paleo Indian period has just obliterated the coastline. Yeah, so, so those but, sites are probably gone.
1: Yeah, and what the what the listener um, it, it, again we we don't have visuals here, but like I, I there are a couple of really great maps. So like Brian Robinson has this map from like the late eighties. And, and JV. Wright in in a lot of his work, has these maps. And, and essentially the early archaic just cuts off basically at around the Kennebec River. and there, and JV. Wrights in, in his diagram actually has a question mark in, in the Maritimes. <laughs> and, and so it wasn't just a great hiatus. I mean it was clear that people were like there had to have been humans here, but they're, like there was sort of these lines drawn that you know that there's definitely like, there's nothing here, right?
0: Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Wright chimes in and says, well, at best it was a pretty good hiatus. <laughs> so so there's this this kind of hole that, that is in the region. And so there's a, a term that we're gonna use periodically, and I and I hinted at it already in my in my three rules for Maine Maritimes Prehistory, which which Ken may not agree with. Um, but that one of those has to do I use the word visibility. And so when, when archaeologists talk about visibility, there's this recognition that there's all sorts of stuff that goes on that people do uh, in the past that may actually not leave much of a trace in the archaeological record. So this is especially true for things that are made on organic materials in the Northeast. So if you work on the interior in those sort of godforsaken mosquito-bitten places that Ken likes to work, if someone yep. if someone killed an animal and left their bones there, those bones aren't going to preserve. And so that means that that activity that they just did was is low visibility from an archaeological point of view.
1: Does that fit yeah. with
0: your kind of understanding of visibility?
1: Yeah. yeah, and and like just to kind of broaden out that context, like basically most of eastern uh the most of the northeast falls in a in a physiographic region of North America where you have acidic soils as opposed to um, neutral or basic soils. And so um, that the acid in the soil, the natural acidified soil um, is, is what chews up and basically destroys those organic remains, unless there is a neutralizing agent, which we'll get to in a few weeks.
0: <laughs> Stay tuned for multiple fortnights. Um, yeah. The and, and so everything that we're dealing with in the Northeast is low visibility by like the standards of a you know a tell. Yeah. Um, but but the there was this sort of understanding that that visibility is a is a problem in this region. And so um, and we should also just pretty much add that in the in the 70s, when when Sanger was pointing out that. There probably were people here, which just that they were low visibility. They were like the Paleo-Indian period was known by like a handful of fine spots, you know, people had found some points. Yeah. So it wasn't like we were dealing with a really well-defined early archaeological record here.
1: But, but the, the difference being that they had this handful of fine spots that looked an awful lot like a fairly well understood Clovis and, you know, Folsom in the rest of North America. Whereas the, the stone tools that we were finding that were being found in the Maritimes that, you know, sort of characterized this, this gap um, or didn't fit anywhere weren't, were fairly unique. Like the, the, right. te- the technology looked different than elsewhere.
0: Yeah. It reminds, so I, I interviewed uh, Art uh, a week ago or so for um for a thing we're doing for the Eastern States Archaeological Federation about publishing an ANA and 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 Arts Piece reminded students who might be interested in publishing an ANA that the readership likes pictures of artifacts. And <laughs> and I think that's that's true because in fact archaeologists like artifacts. And, <laughs> and what artifact do they like most? They like a highly diagnostic projectile point, such as yeah. Neville or Stark. And that was not what was appearing um, up here, but then so uh, the big deal to sort this out is, and this is a a kind of fascinating and I think actually in some ways kind of beautiful story about the articulation between professional archaeology, between you know government archaeology, academic (laughs) archaeology, cultural resource management. Sort of everyone kind of came together in Maine at the Brigham and Shero sites in uh in milo Maine, which is the, the canadian listener will recognize milo as a place they drove uh near on their way to go back to school shopping in bangor and <laughs> so uh uh the brigham sites named for the late uh mike brigham who uh, actually uh, my understanding is acquired and as well as worked at some of the sites before he was a professional archaeologist which he became later and uh Jim Peterson's then company company at the University of Maine Farmington with substantial support from the state did um, work at these deeply stratified interior sites. And what they identified were, um, there's this great picture of Mike Heckenberger, who's now an archaeologist in Florida, but sitting in this like incredibly deep, probably OSHA prohibited. It's got to be OSHA prohibited.
1: Oh yeah, no, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful looking uh profiles and everything
0: it certainly is and he's he's barefoot they must have made him take his boots off to not tramp up the the picture yeah and he's sitting in the bottom pointing at a stratum and in that stratum they had a radiocarbon date that was within this great hiatus period within this early woodland period
1: early, and within the archaic
0: sorry early archaic yeah I, I've got woodland on the mind thank you for thank you for correcting that I I always have the woodland on the mind can you <laughs> and um <laughs> but what was in there and he's pointing at is basically um the world's ugliest artifact assemblage with an early archaic uh archaic radiocarbon date and so this is a what was later named by uh brian robinson jim peterson these guys as the gulf of Maine archaic and it's defined so ken correct me on this you're the, the lithic guy but it's it's Quartz uniface technology.
1: Yep. Quartz and... core technology. So like these are like, um, and not just, um, not just cobble uh, quartz, like uh, this stuff, some of this is quarried as well. Um, so it's being- Oh, interesting. Yeah.
0: And what do they look like?
1: Uh, well, they uh, they look like angular pieces of gravel um, <laughs> until you look at them really closely and you can see that they they have these- um, modified, um, uh, working edges. Um, they're like small scraping tools. They're kind of all, they're very thick. Like none of these are very thin pieces, um, clunky, angular, um, what you would expect quartz, which is a, a, a very hard material, but doesn't break, um, like concoidally and unless in very small fractions. Um, and, uh, and it, it's sort of brittle and so it can shatter sometimes, but so this stuff kind of reflects what that looks like, but, but there was a clear technological strategy, um, with a lot of these that was probably some kind of like bipolar. So anvil crushing technology, where you place a piece of quartz on an anvil and you hit it with another, uh, uh, another percussor, which we, and I don't need to describe that what that is. Cause I think we, we covered that in an early episode. I think we did. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then a lot of working edges and that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, so this quartz core technology or quartz scraping technology was, was prevalent um, uh, along alongside um, choppers, um, uh, gouges, so like large, heavy groundstone tools um, made on pretty dense materials. Um, uh, very few, if if any, bifacial tools, uh, um, and those were were these like large, crude choppers made on like like a um, sort of coarse volcanic rock, um, and and some other things like uh, that. Sort of seem to point to processing plants, um, maybe um, maybe doing some fishing like net sinkers and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but uh, and and uh, flake stone or ground stone ulus. So these half moon shaped knives that would have been particularly good for cutting up plants, but also like processing hide. Um, the ethnographic um, uh, so they're called ulus because ethnographically they look very similar to um, uh, these half-moon knives that Inuit people use for processing seal,
0: isn't it? I think so. And does Ulu mean woman's knife? Am I making that up? That sounds right. I, th- I think that's why we've switched to calling them semi-lunar knives.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, right? it's usually yeah. Ulu with like quotations around right.
0: it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're made of slate.
1: Yes. Yeah, generally. Yeah. Um, and some of them have like backing on them. So some of them look like they're actually... They weren't hafted into anything that they're intentionally made with basically a ridge on the top of them on the flat part that you could hold on to.
0: Um, yeah. And they're, they're pretty beautiful and amazing, actually, I think. Yeah. Looking artifacts like they're very visually striking. Yeah. And stone rods. And stone rods. And am I right that we still don't really know what stone rods were for?
1: No no uh like i've argued that this is uh i think i've told you this before this is a part of the archaic phallic tradition um something <laughs> that you've you've recently published on just to, to some certain degree but uh but i think the the thinking is that there's probably so what was the site that um that sanger um that there there was the rod quarry production site what was that called um, i'm not sure yeah and, and sanger talked about um the site Gilman Falls, which is, uh, which is in Maine. Um, and they, they found what appears to be a quarry basically, um, and workshop for the production of these groundstone rods. And, and I think it's in this paper that, uh, that Sanger speculates that some of these rods might be being used to actually like grind out the, the gouges themselves. So it'd sort of be wet
0: stones kind
1: of like wet stones basically.
0: Yeah. Neat. Um, and, and they're they're interesting looking artifacts. So they're they're basically these large um, cylindrical extended stone artifacts. Is that how you would yeah, describe them?
1: Kind of featureless. Um, like they're called rods because they they don't have any sort of distinguishing characteristics other than being sort of elongated rod like
0: objects. Yeah, and so when this, what was called the Gulf of Man archaic tradition, was identified. It, um, it turned out that it actually had, had analogs as far south as at least the Mashitaki Pequot Museum. Uh, so that's um, the listener who, who watched uh, Red Sox baseball games will recall the, the Foxwoods uh, casino commercial. Let's meet for the wonder of it all. And uh, and that, that referred to Bashintaki uh, Pequot, where there was an extensive archaeological research program in Connecticut, <laughs> Eastern Connecticut. <laughs> and and that's where um, there there was, I think, I think the southernmost really like profoundly, this is for certain Gulf of Maine archaic tradition um, site. So you have this sort of thing, this kind of transitional period at the end um, of the Paleoanian, you get this Gulf of Maine archaic stuff, and all of this kind of suggests, though, that we're looking at a much more interior adaptation. And it doesn't necessarily mean, we should add, they're not using points at all. There are all sorts of ways to make projectile points that don't involve stone. Yeah, um, The listener can't see that Ken's actually crying right now at that thought, because why Why would they want to pass up using something as beautiful as stone to make these? But um, you could have bone points. I think the shenanigans spears are just uh, fire-hardened, wood yeah and and you have evidence of like harpoon technology like atlanta Moor,
1: um uh, which is a burial site up in labrador is it south coast of labrador or north coast of newfoundland
0: oh shoot i would have lost that bar trivia game
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it's somewhere between it's fairly close to the Strait of Belle isle uh i think is is a safe bet um but yeah. that was a a, a burial of a, a, a basically a cairn burial of a teenager uh who was um they actually had very good preservation there and buried with a number of grave goods including stuff that was reminiscent of some of this maritime archaic toolkit that similar to the gulf of maine stuff but also had a number of bone tools uh interred with them as well and that date that site dates to around like 84 or 8600 years ago
0: yeah and that's a there's a bob mcgee book about that um which i can put in the show notes so what we've got then, though, is this: it's seeming kind of shift to maybe away from a kind of big game hunting approach to something that's more of a kind of interior wetland adapted e- economy. Basically, does that does that fit with your understanding of what was probably going on here?
1: Yeah, like Gulf of Main Academy seems to be more interior wetland adapted, but like, but there's hints of connections with with the folks that are probably uh, um, more coastally oriented
0: yes yeah and 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 those sites which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about New Brunswick are probably certainly there like people are probably living on the coast so we know this from stuff that gets picked up in scallop draggers and stuff like that and we'll have some specific examples for you coming up but I want to just talk a little bit specifically about there's this other thing that's going on which is archaic period Cemeteries. And so, of course, archaeologists don't dig up cemeteries anymore, or they try not to. Um, and in the early Archaic, there's this challenge of understanding the connection between habitation sites and cemetery sites. And there's a well-defined habitation thing now because of this Gulf of Maine Archaic. But what we don't understand is exactly how that connects to either the early Archaic cremations, um cemeteries or the moral point complex which yep. are uh the sort of beginnings of a period during which then there's going to later be more rare and kind of isolated burials and then by the end of the archaic just uh very elaborate burials that are are we'll talk more about next week but which are probably going to have a lot to do with indigenous people having this kind of incipient social complexity
1: and, and, uh, and yeah, and that distinction is a little bit hard to, like, this is something that I think I was asking you about a couple of weeks ago, that, uh, that it's not, it's
0: still not super well uh, uh, sorted out. now. Is that correct? That's right. And, and, you know, the, I've got actually Brian Robinson's table here from his book in, uh, from his chapter in Archaic of the Far Northeast.
1: Yeah, I was trying to pull that up, actually, and I've got it in front of me, too.
0: Yeah, and uh you have to really trust a man like brian because he was confident enough to put i'm looking at i think six question marks on a table here
1: (laughs) okay and a bunch of dots
0: yes (laughs) (laughs) and uh and uh you know that it takes confidence to say i don't know and since brian knew more about this than anybody else i think i think we can confidently say that we just don't know about a lot of this Yeah. yeah um and uh it's it's and, and this is another, I guess, problem we should just talk about with hunter-gatherer archaeology, which is that the question of contemporaneity is sort of a relative one. If you're if you're thinking about hunter-gatherer archaeology, which is that you can imagine um, you get a pretty good radiocarbon date. It comes back plus or minus thirty. That's a nice good date from from beta analytic. So plus or minus thirty. That's sixty. You're still dealing with statistical estimate. Um, uh, 60 is is a good long life for an archaeologist let alone a hunter gatherer so <laughs> so you're you're really trying to establish that folks who moved around on a seasonal basis you know by a year trying to pin that together within a within when you're dealing with these kind of 60 year windows is impossible yeah um,
1: and 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 this is all happening as we started out the uh, episode talking about in a period of incredibly dramatic climatic and environmental change right so so what you're seeing here are like these human negotiations uh and cultural responses to um like uh you know your whole world has changed right the animals that you used to hunt are gone uh new ones and and places where you used to live are now the the shore keeps coming higher and higher right like uh uh, you know, the the water, the water is around your ankles and and where do you go now and what do you do now? Um, and and so I think there's sort of this like, it's hard to figure out what people are doing because they might be doing a whole bunch of different things
0: at the same time. The, um, I think it was, was it Sassman who did a, um, a special issue of the SAA. Uh, record which was the the archaic ain't what it used to be something yeah, like that yeah 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 um so you mentioned ken these we've talked a little bit about groundstone so we've talked about uh ads, we've talked about gouges we've talked about rods what's the difference between groundstone and flaked stone?
1: Uh, so, as as the name indicates, so with flake stone, you are generally taking a percussor. So, you're using antler or a stone or um, uh, a wood or something like that to essentially strike a piece of stone to remove pieces from it, um, which we would call flakes, hence flake stone. Groundstone is um, generally material that is of uh, lower, like sort of denser. Um, uh, you know, maybe low grade metamorphic rocks, volcanic rocks, that sort of thing, stuff that might not break conchoidally, um, which is, as, as Gabe described in a previous episode, sort of if you think about um, uh, the way that glass will break if it's uh, chipped on. Um, uh, and so groundstone material is essentially ground down with some other implement. So uh, some kind of abrasive stone uh, that will polish up a rock uh, uh, generally, a heavier, denser rock to um, a, a usable tool, and and we think that a lot of this stuff is probably associated with um, heavy woodworking, uh, because you now have forests establishing themselves that provide you with the type of wood that you could you would require new types of tools to um, to to process.
0: And so, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, because so you you and I spent some time in uh, a canoe that felt like it was a dugout once the uh
1: was it, it, it was certainly heavy
0: enough to be oh man it was, it was a 38 foot chestnut canoe or something that we were at.
1: it was it's uh it's a sizable it's a it's really a pond canoe i think uh yeah. it's technically a lake canoe but
0: yeah um, we set it on top of my subaru and it's it just straddled the roof rack which i thought was great yeah
1: it was longer than a 2003 outback which uh which is a pretty is a feat in and of itself <laughs>
0: yeah um but so there's there's a lot of questions about dugout canoes, birch bark canoes, and when um one starts to be made in the region. Yep. And when the transition occurs from presumably from dugout to birch bark, and whether or not they're at least some point used sequentially. So we now have some sense actually that Dugout canoes, certainly in southern Maine, persisted for a long time, well into the woodland period. As, as
1: you guys established uh, uh, in your own research a few years ago.
0: Yeah, uh, we Gabe, did. So, look,
1: Gabe and their team recovered a, uh, a a dugout canoe in the intertidal zone in coastal Maine.
0: It, yeah, so it it really, Tim Sparr and his team, I was just a part yeah, of that, yeah. but the... Um, but yet we did at um, at Cape Porpoise, which is in which is in Southern Maine. It's sort of uh, uh, it's near the George Bush compound, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you can still smell the sulfur, as Hugo Chavez once said. And um, but uh, the. the and, and David Sanger at least hypothesized that you don't really need groundstone to make dugout canoes. Because my understanding is that you can basically burn these logs until you actually could just go after it with flakestone and hollow it out. So you would sort of have kind of a slow controlled burn on the interior of these logs, scrape them out kind of with like brownstone, uh, sorry, with flakestone hose
1: to, yeah.
0: to make a, a dugout canoe.
1: Yeah. And, and he was talking to like, I think he was specifically saying that gouges like the, so the, the kind of diagnostic um, artifact, that which is, I think gouges are pretty unique to the, like Maine Maritime's region, like or the, the the Gulf of Maine Archaic region, sort of northern New England, right? Like I don't think I, you see those know. in many other contexts. Um, it's an
0: interesting question. I don't know.
1: But um, the, the listener
0: can write in, and, and we'll be happy yeah, to answer yeah, exactly. it. The next exactly. Maybe yeah. we'll
1: get a second user email or yeah. <laughs> uh, listener email. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so his argument was specifically that gouges may not be evidence of dugout canoe technology but because there are a number like you could use an ads which is basically think of an axe and then turn the blade 90 degrees uh, and that's an ads basically Um, and that you can make an ads groundstone or you can make an ads using flakestone technology like that like we know that they or they speculate that during the late paleo earlier cake in the southeast for example that dugout canoes were becoming vogue uh, because of the presence of adzes, flakestone adzes, and like Dalton assemblages. Um, but but all that to say, you don't need these heavy groundstone tools to make a dugout canoe, um, although they would be particularly well suited for for chopping down the tree, at least, that you're going to dig out.
0: And the implications of what sorts of things people would be using dugout canoes rather than Birch bark canoes are interesting for understanding and thinking about how folks would have used especially the interior but also the coast later. Yeah. And then there's also questions about, you know, when birch bark really becomes available to make birch bark canoes, so yes. climate modeling questions.
1: Yeah, which is sort of it's around 3800 years ago ish. Is that kind of uh, I have that number in my head. I don't know why.
0: So I think th- this number's been been bouncing around. I've heard that there could have been birch bark as early as the early archaic. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. Um, Interesting.
0: I, this, you know, I'm probably going to misquote someone on this, but I, but I think that uh, Mali Moran and her doctoral dissertation cited some folks who thought that there could have been birch bark available that early. Wow. Okay. Very cool. I realize I'm setting myself up for an hakuna errata there, but but <laughs> okay. my recollection is
1: I've got, I've got, I'm two for two right now. So we can, uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think, uh, Sorry, did, did we just hear a ping of Mallory emailing in? Um, but, <laughs> uh, but but that's my recollection anyway. Um, so so Ken and I, I've been resolved. We realized that we dragged the listener through um, the, uh, mu- you know, much like uh, Major League Baseball is being slowly destroyed by starting a runner on second, so that the games are shorter. Um, what? In in the in extra innings now they'll they, uh, and the, in the tenth inning and later they start a runner on second base.
1: They just put somebody on second base.
0: Yeah, it's very un American. I don't like it at
1: all. What? Is this like, this is like in regular season? This isn't just
0: like Grapefruit League? This is, this is the regular season, you know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's, um, that's a pretty dumb rule. It's an extremely dumb rule. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> we could turn this into a sportscast show, but the, uh, but, but, <laughs> The listener does not want to hear a repeat of the same conversation I've had with my father 16 times about the destruction of Major League Baseball. So, but but what I meant to say was that that we realized that we ran um, I believe an hour and 48 minutes last time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and we're I don't know, we're coming close.
0: Yeah, we may do this again, but but we are actually committed to trying to keep this in bite-side parcels. So I'm going to do a quick review on what we've talked about now, and then I think we're going to get to New Brunswick. Does that sound yeah. good, Ken?
1: Yeah, it sounds good.
0: So basically, there was this this period of time between about 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. It starts off with some overlap with Paleo-Indian, which we talked about earlier. And then for a long time, people thought, why are there no signs of folks living um, in Maine of the Maritimes during this period? And then... Um, jim peterson brian robinson and colleagues sorted this out at the brigham and site and it turned out this was basically a problem of archaeological visibility and so what actually happened was you didn't have diagnostic projectile points for the most part you had deeply stratified interior sites that suggested a wetland orientation economically contrasting with the kind of previous big game hunting pattern and these interior connections happened at the same time that there are um, early archaic cremation cemeteries and the moral point complex. And clearly these are both related to the ancestors of contemporary Wabanaki people, but the exact um, spatial patterning and exact temporal relationship of the burial periods and the habitation context are not well resolved. Is that a good, uh, too long I didn't read? Ken?
1: That's a uh, that that's a very good summary, and and now you all know where uh, where Gabe's first rule of Maine maritime's prehistory comes from. Maybe that's the title of the episode.
0: Oh, yeah, I th- I think I think that's that's fine. Yeah, so so Ken and I are both you're you're a kind of continuity guy as well, Ken, right?
1: Oh, big time, yeah,
0: yeah. And in that way, we actually sort of you know we harken back a little bit to Tuck's northeastern maritime continuum, which is basically like Jim talking. Maybe the late 60s, probably the 70s. Basically, you see since the Paleo just kind of say, you know, Paleo are there, climate changing, and the Paleons say, Oh wow, you know, look at this incredible coastal ecosystem. And then they turn that into the maritime archaic and they stick around. And those are the ancestors of the Wabanaki and the Inu today. Yeah. So here we are in New Brunswick. And let's we can pick up the story maybe with uh I think probably the first place to pick up a story is that everyone kind of knew there was early archaic here. Like, this is not a big surprise. Yep. Um, so as a result, uh, Brent Murphy people, doing- People a- were
1: finding, like, there's all sorts of um, these diagnostic tools in in like uh, uh, New Brunswick Museum collections. Wittenberg, uh, when he was in New Brunswick in the 1930s, collected all sorts of these objects. A um, lot of avocational work. Um, and, and as a result, uh, uh as you were starting there, uh, this avocational work fed into research work that took on that, that happened in the,
0: in the late nineties. And so that, I think it's summarized in Brent Murphy's master's thesis, right? At a MUN. Yep. And he looked at a whole whack of collections from both New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And so if you, if you were still believing in the great hiatus before then, uh, Brent Murphy sort of sorted you out. And he analyzed collections from evocationals and he just really focused on the like hardcore diagnostic stuff. So this would be the occasional Neville or Stark point that appears in the region. He looked at groundstone rods and then these full channel gouges, which are the earliest gouges. Um, and he found, you know, not a zillion of these, but 30 some, you know, of many of these things. Um, and they were mostly from Spednik Lake and from Grand Lake is my recollection.
1: Yeah, yeah, sort of like Lower Wolastoq and and the Chipit uh Lakes region. So sort of uh, on the border of Maine and New Brunswick, and then the mm-hmm. the area um, in around the Great Great uh, Grand Lake and Grand Lake Meadows area.
0: Yeah, um, which at least to some degree reinforces this kind of interior wetland orientation of the whole, yeah, the whole period. Yeah,
1: the, yeah, exactly. And that you know, sort of after, I guess at that time, it probably would have been. Kind of in the margins of like Lake Acadia.
0: Um, That's an interesting question. Yeah, it must have been. They, which, uh, which
1: we don't really know, know the we have very poorly defined limits of, and and it's, it, you know, something I've scratched my head about several times.
0: Yeah, I was just going to joke that you should just insert that at various points for the remainder of this of this season. You just say, and that was near the margins of Lake Acadia. <laughs> As as we, you know, just, did you know Cahokia was near the margins? (laughs) And, uh, and then uh, in the middle 1990s, uh, then a vocational archaeologist reported archaic pre-artifacts in Charlotte County, and that was at Mill Lake, and they're about 7,000 years old. And so um, one thing I think just keep in mind about this is for many, we mentioned this, uh, when we're talking about Paleo-Indians, is that there's all sorts of, opportunities and we should remember that avocational archaeologists often actually contribute quite a lot to what we know about a region's um archaeology so um and yeah and
1: and i mean a testament is like the Gemsake crossing site um there's uh which is in the lower Rolastog on the gemsake river um there's pretty clear probably like middle archaic uh occupation there um some artifacts were found during the mitigation work in the '90s, um, but they they were kind of cued into the potential for early and middle Archaic uh, um, uh, occupation at the site because of um, the their work working with avocationals and, and private collections in that area uh, where people had recovered, you know, uh, these semi lunar knives and gouges and that sort of thing that are diagnostic to that time period.
0: And that educational archaeologist uh, very responsibly reported uh, the material uh, he or somebody's picked up and to uh, the University of New Brunswick. And these were identified as fitting into this early to middle. Uh, well, then we before I eliminated the middle archaic. But <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I uh, went on to do a master's thesis. And the, so these sites were later the subject of an MA thesis by uh, Brent Suddy. And then we should also discuss. So we're sort of filling in the blanks here. There is some coastal stuff, and I think this this coastal stuff is is pretty neat because it comes up in. There's a certain okay. This this is I'm gonna confess something here, which is that there's a certain conspiratorial element to artifacts appearing in scalp draggers, because it just seems to happen. It's it, <laughs> it's um it it sometimes seems just just it's cool right like it's really cool yeah and and there's a, there's an element of scale here where you know something comes up in a scout dragger and the guys with the, with the scout dragger can give you like you know an approximate oh yeah we caught that on you know mile 14 right?
1: yeah, yeah. When, when you're when your stratigraphic profile is in fathoms it's yeah. uh you know it's
0: like <laughs> that's exactly it and so i'm thinking here about um, and you added more to this the one i was thinking of is that there was a fully channeled gouge that was found offshore from uh, indian island in pass bay and uh sean robinson who was a marine biologist with department of fisheries and oceans at the uh federal biological laboratory in saint andrews and he contacted dave black at unb about an artifact he'd found and he and some of his colleagues steve drake jim martin Russ chandler had been using a scalp drag um actually to sample scallops from the ocean floor for biological research they say biological research but i assume also some of that involved a butter sauce i'm guessing <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah <laughs> i've been i've been i've been the beneficiary of uh of some of that scientific research that uh...
0: Yeah, exactly. The old survey kind um, uh, and they found a stone tool uh, in their sample that was probably from 38 meters depth and that was just east of Indian Island. And that's between Deer Island and Campobello Island. Um, and, and just in terms of the, the morphology of the artifact, it could be as old as say 8,000 years old. Um, and then you noted a number of those ground slate semi lunar knives that, uh, that we, that we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like there were a couple of them. So um, Dave Keenley side talks about a couple of them being found um, off the shores uh, in the Fundy Bay, off of Digby, in Nova Scotia, um, off the North shore of um, PEI uh, in a, uh, I should have written it down. It's like Lake something. It's it's anyway, it's, it's near Surrey, uh, Surrey PEI, which is, which is actually the French word Surrey, like for mouse or uh, S-O-U R-I-S, but I've been corrected many times that's pronounced Surrey in P-E-I. And uh, so it's not just
0: on this program that Ken likes to lean into being the bilingual co-host. It's
1: uh, not, not even functional bilingual. Uh, That's uh, (laughs) but uh, so, so Keenly side presents these art, uh, these artifacts also um, in support of a a fairly interesting um, uh, sort of concept that he put forward in the 1980s about this, uh, supercontinent, I guess, uh, uh, or, or land, land form uh, called North, Northumbria, in which uh, New Brunswick and PEI were actually connected to one another for a time period. So um, we talked about isostatic rebound on the last episode, was it? Um, yes. And so initially, um, water was very high, and then it dropped very low. And during that low stand, what ended up happening was that um, you know, the Northumberland Strait is not super deep. Um, there's parts of it that are only about 35 meters deep, which is actually not very deep, uh, in terms of, uh, if you're talking about like salt water. Um, and so for a time, uh, North, uh, New Brunswick and PEI were actually connected to one another probably as early as 10,000 years ago and up to about five to 6,000 years ago. Um, and so there is actually a drowned landscape that exists between New Brunswick and, and PEI, um, where I I, I'm not certain if there's ever been actually anything pulled up from scalp draggers on the strait itself. Um, but, uh, but certainly uh, kind of fascinating to think about the fact that like, you know, these, these other examples of stuff being found offshore, uh, that, you know, there's this, this human landscape that would have been occupied, um, for millennia basically, uh, that are, you know, is, is essentially just the bottom where when you drive across the confederation bridge essentially is one of these spots um, that would have been kind of the high points between um, connecting these two places. So pretty, pretty neat, actually.
0: Yeah, it's very neat. And um, some other, you know, uh, bits, I guess we say between 10,000 and 5,000 years ago, archaeology in New Brunswick, Jemseg. Uh, and... uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. We had mentioned Jemseg as, uh, as where they had found some early stuff. Yeah. Like probably middle archaic. Um Cool.
0: And is that radio based on radiocarbonates or on diagnostic artifacts?
1: That's diagnostic artifacts. And anything that was found was in the plow zone, basically. So it was far enough back from the river um, that uh, it was in the agricultural, uh, the area that had been used for agric- agricultural purposes. And I think the stuff was being recovered from plow zone. And, and it's the same as, so there's a cluster of sites in around French Lake on Oromocto River. Um, uh, so southwest of the Walastog. Um, and a number of those sites have produced diagnostic artifacts from the early, middle, and late archaic. Um, and so certainly there's some interesting, um, so the Grand Lake Meadows and some of these like wetland areas around the lower Wolasto, uh, sort of surrounding the Grand Lake Meadows, were probably these wetland landscapes, you know, 9 to, to 6,000 years ago. Um, that people were for, were living around and, and what you see actually in some of these sites and, and one of the ones that's in around French Lake is kind of interesting um, on successive terraces apparent and, and I know this anecdotally and and from a technical report that I've read basically there's sort of successive terraces where more recent material down to like the woodland stuff is sort of on the present-day shoreline kind of thing which is cool um, so people are kind of staying in one place um, over time, and I think that gemsakes is essentially the same idea too, sort of chronologically shingled uh, as the water gets lower,
0: yeah and so we've we've been saying woodland and 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 uh you probably the we expect that most of the people that are tuning in here know just about as much about this as we do at this point, but they, <laughs> but we but Woodland we meet about three thousand years ago and more recent. yeah, uh yeah. and then uh project you worked on Ken, the, the Sisson project.
1: Yeah. And so Sisson um, was a, a CRM project basically for um, impact assessment for a potential tungsten molybdenum mine. Um, and uh, during the. I'm testing... sorry, what,
0: what, what kind of. <laughs> well, actually, I've, got, I've
1: got a tungsten ring on right now. So tungsten and molybdenum, they're like rare metals. Can you make a
0: ring out of molybdenum,
1: though? I don't know. I don't actually know what molybdenum is, um, but it's a precious metal, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But or not precious the... enough. Or it's the stuff that they put in Chinese food. It's uh, uh. <laughs> um, So uh, at CISN, during testing, we identified in a couple of test pits, um, diagnostic projectile points. Um, so I think two Stark-style... Projectile points, um, uh, a couple of pieces that look to be fair, like like reminiscent of like Neville, made on the same kinds of material you would expect that stuff to be made on, which um, is kind of coarser grained, like low grain metamorphic rocks and volcanic rocks stuff, like not really like pretty translucent cherts like the Paleo Indian folks liked, um, and uh, and a number of artifacts that were um, uh, consistent with what you would expect to find with this Gulf of Maine Archaic tradition. And what's kind of interesting about the site is that. You don't always find Gulf of Maine Archaic and those projectile points together in one spot. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, basically, as it stands right now, the site was, uh, we worked on it one season, another company worked on it this uh, uh, the next year. Um, and uh, there's a couple of technical reports about it, but it's never been published on, but, uh, but kind of fascinating because it, it may be the farthest north that a Stark Neville component has ever been identified, actually
0: yeah I think that's really interesting and I, and so so one of the kind of take home points here is that when we're talking about these kind of boundaries in uh before european we're we're talking about you know dotted lines on the map not not thick sharpie lines on the map, right so it's not as if there weren't the there there aren't the occasional stark neville points up here. it's just that there's also this this it's the the bigger footprint is the Gulf of Maine archaic,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah um well ken i i think we're, we're perhaps our our bottles of courbassier are, are getting closer and closer to uh half empty and we may want to in the interest of getting the the listener to bed on time switch over to our hit pieces all right let's do that I'll start with mine, I guess, which is that uh, this is actually a 2022 chapter in a book uh, called uh, More Than Shelter from the Storm, Hunter-Gatherer Houses in the Built Environment. And that's edited by Danielle McDonald and Brian Andrews and published by the University of Florida Press. And the article is by Christopher uh, Wolf. He's at SUNY Albany. He's a friend of mine, actually, a friend of yours too, I think um and it's called the longhouse of the maritime archaic increasing complexity or regional resistance and uh i want to highlight this article because even though it's about labrador it's actually about the sort of things we're going to be talking about next week or sorry next fortnight uh, i think bill is next week late archaic is next fortnight and what this has to do with when anthropologists talk about complexity, they basically have, are talking about the number of moving parts in your political system. And this is one of those questions about how complex do hunter-gatherers get? And this is what Chris talks about in this article. And he does it using an architectural proxy, which is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And it's a great article. And I would encourage everyone to check it out.
1: Yeah, These these must be like the newly at Cove houses and that sort of stuff, eh?
0: Yeah. See. Yeah. It includes kind of that. It's um. It's sort of the uh published uh stuff riffing on his dissertation. Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah. Uh. Also the editor of the uh, Northeast Anthropology Journal. That's right. We should actually we should get him on to talk about that at some point. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Be. Um. So my hit piece this week. Uh, I actually have two. Um. Uh. The first one is an update on the advancement of Canadian heritage. Heritage. Uh, legislation at the federal uh federal heritage legislation. Um, and that is that on March 9th, uh so next uh what is that next Tuesday? Uh next Thursday. Uh, yeah. uh yeah, next yeah, Thursday. Today, um yeah. the uh the bill um uh, will be advancing to so bill C23 um uh the historic places act I, I don't have my shorthand in front of me but it'll be moving to uh it'll be in front of the house, uh, second reading, um, my understanding is it's got somewhere between about 40 and an, forty minutes and an hour and a half of debate left on it. Um, so for those of you who have some time to kill uh, in the afternoon, uh, or maybe in the morning, I don't know what time it's gonna be, but uh, you can tune into CPAC, uh, which is the Canadian, um, I don't know what the shorthand is, but it's basically the, the cameras in the parliament uh, that you can watch one of these thrilling, uh, uh, debates on a, a piece of legislation. Um, and, or if you're looking for a nap, maybe you can put it on in the background uh, to hear people, politicians yelling at each other. Um, and so, uh, sorry, I
0: just I'm hearing the CRM people saying that, well, that's billable hours. I can do that on the, I can take a nap and I can bill it.
1: There you go. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, and so um, after debate, um, it sounds like there's a kind of a, you know, support for this moving forward. Uh, this, Bill will then go to committee to be studied further. And um, uh, as a representative, so as the chair of the advocacy committee at the Canadian Archaeological Association, the CAA has been involved uh, with what uh, it's been called the Heritage Consortium. And so it's a group of heritage organizations from across Canada that have reviewed this bill. Um, we have a, a heritage lawyer who's actually been incredibly helpful in kind of like breaking down terminology and that sort of stuff. And uh, we have submitted to the federal government a list of recommendations for alterations to the bill. The Canadian Archaeological Association has specifically weighed in on the archaeology aspects of the bill um, and made recommendations. In that committee, um, these recommendations will be discussed. Um, uh, there will be people that sit in front of the committee and justify why we think those recommendations are valid, why the bill should be tweaked, uh, and uh, it'll go back to the House sometime in the next couple of months. I, you know, the the exact process uh i'm not sure but uh i will continue to get updates and and i will update you the listener on this exciting exciting process and then um and my second hit piece sorry, just,
0: just 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 turn on that real quick and so and so our, our i think our shared view on this would be that this is positive because these are at least small steps maybe shuffles towards canadian federal heritage legislation
1: yeah so each each step in this legislative process so um in the canadian federal system A bill goes through first reading in front of Parliament, second reading in front of Parliament. It goes to committee. Committee then recommends um, tweaks to the bill, then it gets read in front of Parliament again. Uh, So it's called third reading, which is another debate. And then if it's voted on by a plurality of members of Parliament, uh, it is passed into legislation and then goes to the Senate for uh, another review, basically. Uh, But generally, the Senate doesn't reject legislation that's been approved by the elected members of parliament um so we're, we're we're on the cusp of legislation that is akin to what the americans had in the 1930s
0: <laughs> it, there's been a great hiatus in canadian heritage legislation in
1: canadian federal heritage legislation yeah um and then and then a brief secondary hit piece is uh, uh gabe drew, drew my attention to a really uh a really interesting um, issue of the Advances in Archaeological Practice, which is put up at the Society of American Archaeology. Uh, this is actually open access. Um, so for any listener who doesn't even have uh, library access, you can look this up. Um, a really interesting article about data management and data collection in archaeology, uh, what that's going to look like and how that works in terms of uh, how we collect data in CRM world, um, how we respect um, different stakeholder groups and uh, indigenous uh, perspectives on the management and long-term uh, curation and uh, dissemination of archaeological data, uh, and sort sort of a forward-looking piece um, uh, series of articles that uh, that I'd recommend everyone read.
0: And and one of the things we talked about when we were discussing this earlier is that it's interesting to think about in many ways. The Maritimes was uh, kind of an early adopter of thinking about trying to have data compatibility across jurisdictions by introducing the Maritime, Mar-i
1: yeah. So the Maritime Archaeological Resource Inventory Form, which is a shared archaeological site form between New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI, um, and and was, uh, yeah, like you said, forward thinking in the sense that like uh, it's a kind of a uh, fairly similar. It's you know all Wabanaki history basically within the three provinces, and and why not have, um, why not make a, a you know post colonial. Uh, jurisdictional boundaries uh, shed those a little bit to better understand the archaeological record.
0: And to some degree, the potential of that though, maybe hasn't been realized through the kind of digital revolution and the sorts of data that you could have be brought to comparable and negative data as well. So the article delves into those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, Ken, I think uh, we should perhaps uh, bid the listener farewell. Yeah. And um, we will look forward to seeing them next fortnight.
1: Yes. And, uh, thank you to all our listeners. And I just want to put out another plug for, um, uh, Shane Dahl and Justin Hankey, who are, are, uh, the artists who wrote the, uh, awesome music that you get for all of these transitions and everything like that. And for, and giving them to us for basically a high five, um, and, uh, um, and, and, a, and a shout out. So, um, look them up and, and, uh, and thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing those numbers pick up.
0: Have a good fortnight, everybody. We'll see you for the special episode with Bill Farley.